Unarmored Talk podcast, episode number nine. Returning home from combat, the transition was not easy. Hosted by Mario P. Fields, with today's guest, Frank Gus Biggio, United States Marine Corps veteran, author of The Wolves of Helmand. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Unarmored Talk Podcast, where we will have real-life conversations that helps you develop an accurate way of thinking. And the way we're going to do this is by gaining a better understanding of how feelings, emotions, and thoughts can influence the outcome of a personal or professional challenge. I'm your host, Mario P. Fields, and today's guest is Frank Gus Biggio, the author of The Wolves of Helmet. And if you're viewing this, you can see it. Um, if you're listening to this, you can go to our YouTube channel and take a look at it. The author of The Wolves of Helmet. He's also, and that's Afghanistan, by the way, Helmet Province in Afghanistan. He's also a United States Marine Corps veteran. Gus, welcome to the show. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing great, Sergeant Major. And, you know, there's some habits that you can't break a Marine of. So I know you introduce yourself to everybody as Mario, uh, but to me, you're Sergeant Major Fields. Yes. So, and before we start talking, I want to thank you for having me here, of course. But um, I want to tell your listeners how we met. So in 2016, I was living in Dubai and I always loved going to the Marine Corps ball there. They the, the Marine detachment at the, the embassy and the consulate put on some fantastic balls. And in 2016, there was this Sergeant Major who spoke and he nailed <laughs> it. He left the audience standing in a voice in, in, uh, with a standing ovation. They were like, man, that guy is something else. And we had a, everyone was lining up to talk to, to you <laughs> afterwards and say what a great speech that was. And, and we had a couple moments. Two years later, I was very privileged to give the speech at the exact same ball. And a lot of people said, hey, remember that Sergeant Major from two years ago? Are you going to be like him? And I was like, man, if I can be a fraction of how good that guy was, um, then, then, then I will have won. And so I was so pleased to connect with you um, probably about two years ago on, uh, on LinkedIn. And then it, it makes perfect sense that you're running a company called Global Inspirational Speakers because that first time that we met and I heard you speak, you, you just knocked it out of the ballpark and you really set an example for everyone to aspire to. No, I, I appreciate it. I, I really do. That was a memorable ball. And, um, you know, again, I, I appreciate it, but, um, but there, there's a little bit more about you though, than the, than the Dubai ball. So, you know, give us just a couple of, a couple of minutes about the man, the author, the myth, the legend, Gus. Sure. Um, I, I, lo I love all those accolades. So <laughs> I was um, I served in the Marine Infantry after college in the mid 1990s. Super fine. Did a little less than five years and loved every moment that I did. I was a rifle platoon commander, a heavy guns platoon commander. Then I was a rifle company XO. And for a brief period of time and after that uh, post deployment period, I was a company commander. I never wanted to be a career officer. I just wanted to serve yeah. my country and move on and do other things and be a strong advocate for the Marine Corps as a civilian, which I did. Ended up going to law school uh, and worked in different jobs in law and finance, mostly in Washington, D.C., but a little bit in New York. After 9-11, I was aware of what was going on following the news. I was really right. proud of all my friends who were still serving and the things that they were accomplishing. They were climbing through the ranks, 
company commanders, battalion XOs, OPSOs. And around 2006, I sort of got the itch and said, gosh, I want to serve one more time. I want to, yeah. I want to contribute. I'm proud of what these guys are accomplishing. And I'm a little bit envious because here I am sitting in a law firm and it's interesting, important work at times, but it doesn't, right. doesn't have the impact that I want to give. So I rejoined the Marine Corps with a reserve unit called the Civil Affairs Group, which was based out of Washington, D.C., right. with the intention of getting back in the action one more time. Now, I would be really neglectful if I didn't say anything about my wife. So <laughs> in the lottery of life, I hit the jackpot when it comes to my spouse. So she's smart, she's sexy, and she puts up with me. But she also understands me. And she understood right. the importance of the Marine Corps and the sense of service that I had. So it was understood. She's like, okay, I get it. You want to do this. It's important. Right. You can do it. Uh, now, there were a couple caveats. One was that, um, you know, I do one stint. You know, I go go to the hot spot once, and then I come back and settle back down. Right. Uh, and the other thing was she said, this is your midlife crisis. So, you know, don't. Don't expect that you're going to get a fancy red sports car or a motorcycle or, you know, start up a band or something like that. So this this is it. And I, I kept my end of the promise. Well, so, I, you know, that that's that that takes a lot. You know, here you are, what, your 30s? So at that time, yeah. when, when I was recommissioned <laughs> in the Marine Corps, I was 37 years old. Yeah, so, you, I, yeah, so you're late 30s, right? You, you got a nice job. And all of a sudden, you, you're like, no, I want to go back and give some more. And you got to propose to your wife to uh, my my proposal to you is I want to go back into the Marine Corps. Yes. And it's it's a tough dis uh, discussion to have. Right. And a lot of people's spouses wouldn't wouldn't support it. And I don't begrudge them for that. Uh, right. But again, you know, that's that's where we talk about, um, you know, the, the lottery of life and, and how I won with that. That's so that's up, that's awesome. I, that, I ended up joining the um, the civil affairs group. Uh, really fantastic unit. And for the time I'd been out of service and what I wanted to do and what I had done in the intervening period, this was the exact right unit. They had some stellar Marines from from the right. colonel down to the, the junior Marines. And they were folks who were lawyers at the Justice Department. We had a CIA right. analyst, a NASA rocket scientist, teachers, firemen, um, uh, you know, business leaders, uh, congressional aides, we had a, a candidate for Congress, you know, so these, these guys are just, I was, I was in really good company, uh, ended up getting activated and deployed to Helmand province in 2009. Okay. My team that was uh, six Marines and one corpsman was attached to first battalion, fifth Marines. And we went to a place in Helmand province called Nawa, which was a violent, lawless, chaotic right. place when we arrived, by the time we turned it over to the next battalion, 3-3 uh, out of Hawaii, led by uh, Colonel Matt Baker, um, the place had undergone a complete transformation. Local government was in place, solving Afghan problems for Afghans. Schools were open, commerce was vibrant, and there was a real sense of security. So we had something to definitely be proud of when, when we left there. And the Marines and the next right. couple of Marines were going through rotation uh, kept up that momentum and that forward progress. Well, now that you've mentioned it, and, and, and thanks for really, really letting us into your life and, and how you, you, you know, you got back in the Marine Corps as an officer when served um, in a combat zone. Great points. It sounds like a successful deployment. I mean, I don't, everyone has a different definition of what successful looks like, 
but Gus, I'm going to imagine that it was a successful deployment. But let's jump right into the topic. Sounds like you uh, was pretty easy, right? You know, make a decision. Let me join the Marine. Let me get back in the Marines. Do what I love. Do what's comfortable, right? Let's go. Let me, let me get in. But now you're coming back home. It's 2009. You just finished this kind of kinetic deployment, right? You know, that, that was some rough Very times, kinetic. you know, rough area. So now you're coming back home. How is this? How was your transition? So it wasn't easy. Um, and, uh, you know, I returned back to the, the lifestyle that I, in some ways, some people could say I was running away from. So it certainly wasn't my family that I was running away from, but it was the routine of, of being a corporate lawyer. Uh, and one of the reasons I joined was because I was like, man, I don't need to wear pinstripe suits and wingtip shoes. I want to wear camis and boots and, and, and do. And I want to shave my head like Sergeant Major. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I came back and the emotional high mm. that I felt from what we accomplished uh, as Marines in Nawa right. was hard to replicate back at the law firm. There's, and, and I'm not, talking bad about my profession because right. I'm back in this profession now, but there's not much of an emotional high about signing a share purchase agreement right. or, you know, a, a credit agreement or an intercredit agreement. Some of the transactional stuff that I do, it's just going through the motions and checking the boxes and getting things done for your clients. So all of a sudden I was back in that environment where Previously, for seven months, there was stress and there was strain and there was tension. And even when things were calm and quiet, you couldn't relax because all of a sudden they might not be calm and quiet at, at, right. at a moment's notice. And that's not the case in, in a law firm. So I had a hard time readjusting. You, to you that. know, you know, Gus, and I, and I like how you I like how you highlighted you know, the the intensity when you're deployed and the, the sense of purpose of daily, um, which which you never questioned, right? There was no ambiguity. But then how you come back home and you try to replicate that sense of purpose and you couldn't. Like you said, it was difficult. And, and how you explained that was just, uh, I, I think it was uh, uh, something to highlight. Uh, so So here you are now, Figuring out that the, that sense of purpose that I had and that that uh, adrenaline, I can't replicate it back here in the law firm. How did you deal with that? It took time. And I'm glad that you used that phrase, sense of purpose, uh, because there were times where I felt in Nawa, I said, man, this, this is what I'm meant to do. Right. Uh, and there's the Marine aspect and there's sometimes there's the, the, the fighting, the kinetic part about it. But my job as a civil affairs team leader was oftentimes to sit down with the locals, drink tea and talk about what's going on in their mind. Right. Uh, it was to work with our non-Afghan civilian counterparts to help support infrastructure projects or other types of programs. And then it was obviously working with our Afghan counterparts to strengthen their system of local governance and, and provide opportunities for them to succeed. So I really felt that there was a sense of purpose. And right. as I said, when you come back to the law firm, 
you can be the coolest guy, you can be the smartest guy, you can be the most efficient guy, but oftentimes yeah. in, in a law firm, your value to the organization is very easy to quantify and it's based on how you hit your billable hours quotas. Mm-hmm. So I felt myself really struggling with coming back to that reality. And there were times where you know, I felt guilty about going to war because my wife was home with our oldest son and our second son was born. I didn't meet him until he was three months old. Wow. So, so, was, so she delivered your second son essentially with you for deployed. Yes. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, other folks who were deployed with us, you know, their wives had kids too. Right. Um, you know, I'm going to talk about, uh, you know, the thing that I still think about a lot. My, my team chief, a gentleman named Bill Kerr, didn't have to deploy. Uh, he was a reservist. He has an incredible life story. Uh, joined the Marine Corps at 34 years old. Yeah. Joined the Marine Corps at 34 years old. His drill sergeants were probably a decade younger than him, but he felt <laughs> that sense of purpose. Joined the reserves with the Civil Affairs Group. Did two deployments to Iraq. Very intense deployments. Uh, Ramadi and Fallujah, I believe. Didn't have to go to Afghanistan. But he was drawn by that sense of service. Uh, and he, he was killed on uh, August 13th. Yeah, God last, yeah. The last um, you know, non-Marine Corps conversation that he and I had was where he was talking about um, the conversation he just had with his wife. And she confirmed that the pregnancy that he knew about before he deployed that was going to be twins, he, he knew that he just learned that they were going to be girls. Right. Uh, and that was, that was uh, the day before he, he was killed. Wow. So that uh, that weighs on me a lot. Yeah. And it weighs on me that, you know, I had to call my wife who was pregnant at the time and say, I need you to go to Bill's funeral. Right. And, you know, extend our condolences to his pregnant wife. So there's wow. some guilt that comes with going to war. Yeah. Wow. We'll come back. Yeah. And this is sort of a message for all of us who have served. We, we, uh, we are rightfully proud of what we've done. Uh, and there are things that we are entitled to, things that we have earned, things that we deserve, whether it's moral or whether it's set in stone in, in the law, things like the GI Bill. But there's also a, a moral gratitude that I think our, our fellow countrymen owe us. But we need to also be humble about yeah. ourselves. And coming back to the law firm, I think that I went through a period where I thought, why isn't everybody lining up outside my door and thanking me? <laughs> say, and it ain't was, so, say it ain't so, Gus. You're, you're telling everybody I, they need to come report in. I just got back. You guys don't know what it's like, right? <laughs> and and, and I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that, but... but it's um, talk. <laughs> you're, you're exactly right. So... I had some frustrations and, yeah. and, 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 and it was tough. And I, you know, I was back in the routine and I was polishing my wingtips. I was making sure my shirts were pressed and my, my uh, tie knot w- was just right. But I was like, geez, you know, what, what have I come back to? So I was short tempered. Uh, I was dismissive. Mm. Uh, and sometimes I took my frustrations and impatience out on people, the people who were closest to me, you know, including my family. And that, that's, so, you, you know, that's a, I was going to bring that up is, 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 
how did how did that impact the boss of your house, your lovely bride and your children? It you know, it, it's hard to sort of quantify exactly how, you know, and, and my, my kids were right too young to, for it to really resonate with them. But, you know, it it, it took a strain, uh, you know, and there, there were times where we had some heated conversations, my wife and I. And I kind of find myself uh, oftentimes just wandering, whether it was out walking around late at night or driving around late at night. But then there was a time where all of a sudden there was kind of like this aha moment. Mm. And I hope that all of our fellow service members have or will have that aha moment. And what I mean by that aha moment is we need to come to the realization that we're not always going to be on the tip of the spear. Right. And that's okay. That's okay. Someone else will have their turn to be at the tip of the spear because when it was our time, when we were called and when we answered the call, we went and we served and we served well, but we need to keep moving on. And so we need to redefine our tip of the spear. And for me, redefining being the tip of the spear was being a good husband and a good father. Yeah. Specific moment. Go ahead, Sergeant Major Sergeant. Oh no, 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 no. I just I just like how you 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 described how you got you are aware of your emotions, but how you, you know, the aha moment is what I heard from you is that you applied some thought um that kind of got the emotions out of the way. And you said, Hey, you know, my thoughtful <laughs> approach to this is what you just laid out, you know, good father, good husband, you know, but not at the tip of the spirit. And so that, that was interesting how that, that influenced the outcome, if you will. Yeah. So when when I had this kind of epiphany moment, I think a combination of listening to Mick Jagger and uh, a song that happened to come up on the radio and being with my two sons. um, (laughs) What was the name of the song? uh, Jumping Jack Flash. And the, the specific line that, that is, uh, and, and I'll tell you the circumstances of how I was listening to that was, I was bound, I was washed up and left for dead. I was down on my knees and I saw that I bled, you know, and I was kind of like, okay, washed up, down on my knees. And I was like, right. damn, is that me? But um, I'd gotten up uh, early one morning. This would have been in the springtime of, of 2010, so April, May. And wanted to give my wife kind of a rare weekend day to sleep in. So I put the two kids in the car and I was driving in Washington, DC. And for me, um, Arlington Cemetery is, is kind of a magnet. And I go there a lot. And some, I like to walk around the headstones. It's a place that just gives me a sense of calm and yeah. a sense of solace. And I feel that uh, I'm, I'm walking amongst my brothers and sisters in arms who, who right. have many of them given the, the ultimate sacrifice. And my, my team chief is buried there too. So on this particular day, I was going to just go to his, his tombstone in, in section 60. So when I was driving with the boys, it was a misty day. The sun hadn't risen yet, but there was just a little drizzle in the air and I had the window cracked and it's that time of year in Washington, DC where everything's blooming. And it's which is beautiful. beautiful, by the way, it's beautiful. The, 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 um, the, the cherry blossoms are blooming, the wisterias, wow. the, the tulips that people plant. So there, there's color and there's smells. And it was a weekend, so there wasn't the rush hour traffic. So 
there's almost a calm sense about there and just the, the subtle noise of cars driving on a wet street. Right. And the kids were comfortable in their car. And I thought, gosh, you know, I think I'm seeing and feeling things with clarity now. So we parked the car and walked through uh, Arlington Cemetery and had my youngest son in the little strap-on holder <laughs> there. And he quickly fell asleep. And, you know, my, my oldest son was, you know, he was about two and a half years old by that time. So he was active and mobile and curious, and he had a little bit of a vocabulary. And we made our way to Section 60, and I wound my way through uh, some of the stones, and I came to where I was. And, you know, I took a breath, and I just started talking to my friend, Bill Kerr. Right. And, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of one of those private conversations that, that we have that we always feel like we have to have. And my son, two and a half years old, he looked at me and he said, who you talk to? <laughs> and I said, I'm talking to my friend. Right. And my, my little kid said, okay. He said, okay. And that was it. I was like, all right. You know, I know what's important and I know who I need to serve and how I need to serve. Right. And I'm not a platoon commander anymore. I'm not a team leader. Uh, I'm not wearing the uniform anymore, uh, but that's okay because I'm still serving. And it's my kids, my wife, my family, you know, my country in other ways. Right. And there was this sense of relief and calm with that. And that's the concept of, you know, coming home and being home that I talk about yeah. in the book and how it home might not be a physical place, a house or a, an address, but it's a spiritual and a mental place. Yeah, and good I felt point. at that moment that, that I was home uh, and, and that home was, was a place that I had found and that my kids had found. So no, that's, and, a, that's a, uh, that's, that's a good point, Gus. I've never, actually, I've never heard anyone um, articulate, home for a service member uh, could also be mentally home. Uh, so that, that um, you know, that's a good point. Yeah. So, and, um, you know, I've doubled the number of kids that I have. So we have, we have four <laughs> kids now. Uh, and, um, you know, this uh, thick head of kind of silvery gray hair used <laughs> to be, you know, nice and lush and brown almost black but uh, and i think maybe the kids might have something to do with that but again it's it's that sense yeah. of you know they are why i do what i do and that, that's that amount of wisdom that you have gained and developed over the last we'll, we'll, we'll put you at 40 gus we won't tell the world what you're real we'll put you at 40 i'll take it i'll take it um <laughs> but you know what what i mentioned was yeah th that i hope that our fellow veterans or quite frankly, anybody who's who's gone through uh, a period of time where, where where they've wondered what what they need to do with themselves. I hope that they find their home and that they find uh, what what they need to do with themselves. And I hope that home finds them. Right. Uh, and I would say that there's also there there's ways that if people are struggling with with finding that that th there are places and organizations that can help them. 
with that. Right. Uh, I would say that, uh, you know, one of the ones that I'm, I'm really proud of the work they're doing is called the Headstrong Project mm-hmm. uh, that provides uh, no cost counseling to veterans who are dealing with, with some issues, whether it's PTSD or just some other emotional struggles. And that's one of the groups that uh, I'm really pr- proud to say that I'm, I'm donating some of the proceeds of uh, my, my book sales to, to them to support their efforts. So what I would say to folks is that there are there are groups out there and there are people out there who will listen. Uh, and to the extent you want them to talk, they'll also talk and they'll help you and push you in the right way. No, I appreciate that, Gus. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, you heard it from Gus. You, you know, combat was tough, but coming back home was even more tough. And, you know, being aware of his emotions, um, essentially applying thought at the end, um, influenced his outcome, which is just incredible. And then you heard the resources that uh, that he put out there. Great, great organizations. Uh, Gus, if you can do me a favor, uh, can you can you tell us how do we get your book? Where can we find uh, the Wolves of Hellman? Okay, a couple of ways to buy it. Uh, first of all, I'd love it if people would go to the website, which is wolvesofhelmand.com. The reason I want you to go there is because I've got a lot of galleries of some of the Marines that, that I served with. And it's important for me to point out that I, I wrote the book, but it's not just my story. It's a story of the Marines I served with uh, from 1-5 and everybody else who supported that battalion. And I hope that when they read it, they say, yep, he nailed it. This is what it was like. And I hope that everybody else who served in Afghanistan or Iraq um, that has experienced some of the hardship that we went through, but also some of the, the camaraderie that we went through says, yeah, this, this is a real accurate depiction of what we did. And I also hope that for people who maybe don't have a personal connection to the military, but are curious about it, find that it, it resonates well with them. So wolvesofhelmand.com. I also have a Facebook page of the same name, The Wolves of Helmand, where I uh, post a lot on there. Um, and you can also get it on Barnes and Noble and Amazon. And I understand that it's in quite a few bookstores, uh, nice. Barnes and Noble and some other local small bookstores. So I've been real pleased with um, the reports that I've gotten about how, how it's, it's done in the first week. And, uh, you know, I'm just just really, really tickled by, by, by the feedback I, I've, I've been getting so far. No, ladies and gentlemen, I read it myself. It's a it's a great book. You got to go get it. Good read. Um, Gus. Thank you for coming on the show. Truly appreciate you. My pleasure, Sergeant Major. So uh, this this was great to reconnect. (laughs) And, you know, Gus was an officer, so I'm going to say, yes, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, but ladies and gentlemen, if you got this uh, video, be uh, this uh, interview will be live on my YouTube channel so you can watch it. All you got to do is subscribe at Mario P. Fields slash YouTube. Google that. Put in your search engine. However you want to do it, it'll come up. And then also, if you can just leave us a nice review and uh, a little ranking there with the stars on Apple Podcasts, that would be much appreciated. Until next time, see you later. Thank you, Sergeant Major. You're welcome, sir. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Unarmored Talk Podcast. Subscribe at www.unarmoredtalk.com to receive information on the release of upcoming episodes. Unarmored Talk Podcast is sponsored by Global Inspirational Speakers, LLC, a inspirational speakers bureau that connects inspirational speakers to the world.